Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back. You found your way to Making Data Simple. I am with Alex Makarski today. He is the founder of ClickMakers.io and co-founder of MeasureBit.com. I'm going to give a, a quick lead in as I often do, and then I'll turn it over to Alex himself. But what I know of Alex is he's interested in how artificial intelligence and machine learning are changing the way products are promoted and sold. He builds digital meeting buying and data consulting teams who thrive on data and innovate in the areas of data integration, attribution, data augmentation, AI, ML, aided media buy-in and decision-making. He's all data, which is why I like Alex already. He has managed millions of dollars in monthly ad spend for companies ranging from open source software to lead generation and from e-commerce to digital products. He's done consulting work with companies like McDonald's, Siemens, P&G, Colgate, etc. And that's where he started working with big data. He co-founded a local business where he learned how to build, optimize, and scale lead generation campaigns using Google ads. This was a side hustle that turned to profit every year, was ultimately acquired, but led to the launch of ClickMakers, which is a paid media agency, it does conversion tracking, analytics, data integration, consultancy. Hey, thanks, Alex, for being here. How'd I do? That's that's pretty good. Yeah, I'm like, who's this hey, guy? Do a little bit of research person? anyway. Add some color if you would. Well, first of all, I'm a long-time listener to your podcast, so I'm a big fan. Thank big you. Fan. That's awesome. I've learned so many concepts related to data and a lot of things that we incorporate into what we do at MeasureBit. Some of the early episodes Fantastic. of this podcast. And We're actually some doing some good then. You had here. <laughs> totally, totally. But by the way, did it ever dawn on you that L, like you can't really tell like if it's L or AI? So maybe hold, you, are you, AI you know, hold Martin. on for a second. You got to Actually, I did a pitch yesterday. I live in Kansas City, and we did a Generation AI pitch. My second slide was that. I, I said, look, I got a love-hate relationship with AI, and the reason I do is because my name, and this is true, is everywhere now. I mean, my news feed, I can't, it's, it's like I got schizophrenia. I'm everywhere. So, yes, it does dawn on me. And if, if we could do a public service announcement, we need to get rid of uh, Arial Font. If it's not Arial font, usually, you know, you can tell the I from the L, but Arial font is no good. It makes my life hell. <laughs> but my wife is a Karen, yeah. so she's been canceled. <laughs> so it's I, I'm in a better situation than she is. <laughs> why, why don't you just change your yeah. name officially to that, AI, That's the know, other option. That, that's that the other guy. Option. But sorry to interrupt. Yes, you just hit my trigger point because yeah, I just you, delivered that same pitch yesterday. Well, you mentioned that I've been working with big data since before there was big data. That's... Kind of true. Um, I was like we're talking about twenty years ago was with, with a company in Toronto called Thinking Ventures, and we built those early data warehouses, like well, the data warehouses, cubes, all app. Those were the, the the terms that we kicked around, and we had some interesting clients. Like we were a small consulting group, like about twenty twenty five engineers, you know, coming out of the dot com meltdown, the nine elevens, and all this, the, the nuclear winter in the software space. And we built data warehouses for large food service companies with hundreds of locations coast to coast. And I remember one episode when um, uh, there was one company and they had several brands underneath and, and a bunch of them used a cash register that belonged to a company that went bankrupt that didn't exist anymore. So there was no access to any resources. You know, APIs didn't exist. Like 
we had to basically crack the network protocol that this cache register used to sure. get at the data and put the data, push this data into the central data warehouse where they had the analysts, you know, sitting all day long, slicing, dicing this stuff. In uh, in the precursor to uh, Power BI, back then it was like an add-on to Excel that you would use to access the cube and do this kind of stuff. It was kind of cool. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Um, as you how, yeah, it's kind of uncanny how similar that work is to what we do now with MeasureBit. Like when we stitch together Frankenstein yeah. monsters and put together Humpty Dumpties, it's, it's just incredible how much the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme Absolutely. a lot. Now you're a founder of ClickMakers.io. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us about MeasureBit.com. Right. So ClickMakers grew out of my knowledge of how to drive traffic and leads. I learned... Back in the day, it was called Google AdWords. I had a free $100 certificate from Google. So a friend of mine launched a local business, invited me to become a partner. And my job was to drive leads. He would manage all the orders and all the logistics of delivering the service. My job was simple, you know, spend money and get leads, which is basically how I learned to do this stuff. And then I started to get freelance consulting gigs with some Silicon Valley startups, I would become the outsource marketing department and some of the startups would get acquired and everyone would get big bonus and I would get fired <laughs> as a contractor. Yeah, that's it. That's not, you're <laughs> and, on the wrong uh, side there. Yeah. And, and I realized that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I figured I, I didn't need to have equity in those deals and become an, an employee or launch an agency and have a bunch of these guys in my program at the same time so that, you know, losing one of them just because we helped them grow so much wouldn't impact, wouldn't be an existential issue all of a sudden on a, on a bright sunny day. So um, that's that was the inception of ClickMix. That's pretty much how it happened. And we've helped quite a few companies go from one to 100, so to speak. Uh, we usually don't come in when it's a zero. Like we don't work with uh, startups that just are just figuring out their product market fit. But once they get a little bit of traction, we come in and help them scale. One of the big issues for media buying has become data, you know, attribution, all the statistical models. Well, we, we've got seduced by the siren song of attribution in the last 10 years, and we expect way more from it than it's capable of delivering. And it's got to be able to deliver a lot less in the coming months, like with uh, iOS 17 about to hit the phones in a couple of months. Attribution is definitely an important tool, but it's not a magic wand. It's not something that's going to all of a sudden turn your marketing data into, you know, precise and exact data like accounting. So um, it should not be treated with the same expectation. It should not be considered um, the ultimate truth. We use models. You know, you apply different models, you get different answers, but all these answers are correct. Just because you have, you get different answers based on different models, that does not invalidate the other model. They, 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 the range of applicability of each model has to be considered every time like before you look at the data and make decisions based on it. Uh, there's, there's a pretty interesting emergent property that no one seems to be talking about much in, in, in the media mind world, and that is that campaigns are becoming multi-channel all of a sudden. Like in the past, you would run search, or you would run display, or you would run audio, or you would run TV, or you would run whatever, direct mail. And each channel would be treated with its own set of metrics. And you would say, well, 
let's say if I have one order worth $2,000 and it takes me 10 leads to get one order, then each lead is worth 200 bucks. That's so simple. Arithmetic, everyone understands it, but it's becoming very quickly becoming outdated and can lead you in the wrong direction. In the, in the modern world where we delegate a lot of media buying, buying tasks to machine learning, I don't want to necessarily call it AI. We, we can. But whenever we use the term AI, we think generative AI. This is, this is like the original true machine learning where it makes a bunch of decisions on our behalf, decisions that we used to be uh, in charge of as media buyers like even a few years ago. But nowadays, all these decisions happen inside the auction. But even now, it's not just the auction that the, network, that, that, that the machine learning is going to choose for us. It will even decide which network is going to run this auction on. And, and that is a very significant distinction because if we go back to the scenario, one order, $2,000, 10 leads to get one order, one lead is worth 200 bucks. That's a, the wrong answer. The correct answer is, and has always been, that there's one lead worth $2,000 and nine leads yeah. worth exactly zero. And we need to remember this truth, right? So we, we took that shortcut like back in the days of direct mail and magazine ads and TV ads where you launch a campaign, you get back the data and you can stop for a bit and analyze the data and make the decision about how you're going to deploy the next round of the campaign. Now in the world of machine learning, like, there's no stopping and going, like it happens immediately. The campaign self-optimizes based on the feedback that it receives from you. So it's very important to explain to the machine what is important to your business in a very clear way. If you tell the machine that each lead is worth $200, it will find you a bunch of crappy leads and will think that it's making you $200 every time someone fills out the form. And we all know that there's a lot of click farms, there's a lot of bots, and a lot of this, there's a lot of websites made for advertising on 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 a display network and uh, and across different auction uh, networks as well. The, the the machine learning algorithm will, will choose the path of least resistance, and will just go into the place where it can grab the cheapest conversion pro- possible for you, and it's probably not the lead you you're looking for. It's definitely not worth two hundred bucks to you. So it's very important to be very strategic about how you fire conversion events, how you send them back to, you know, Google, Meta, Twitter, whatever you're running on, because it's very easy to steer the algorithm or allow it to run away with your wallet um, and just uh, optimize for for their own KPI. What I heard you say is uh, a lot of this is about modeling correctly and making sure you're thinking right, because the algorithm, like like you mentioned, will steal your wallet with lower deals, thinking that it's being successful when you're not valuing the deals correctly. Well, the metaphor I use for that is that of uh, of dog training. Like when we fire a conversion event for a lead that's not going to, that has no chance, that's not even a lead, that's just a fake opt-in that has no chance of becoming revenue ever. Uh, that's the metaphor I use. Uh, and it's a pretty good one because like imagine like for a puppy to ask you to open the door, let them out or walk them outside. It's nasty outside. It's the weather's bad, you know, could be raining, could be snowing, could be super hot. Uh, he has to wait for you to put put your shoes on and put him on a leash and walk him. It's it's a process. Like it's way harder to do that for a puppy, right? And that's the behavior you want to reward. This is you want to tell him that this is the behavior you value more. That's the metaphor I use when I explain it to our clients. You know why we need to do this complex data work to understand the value of the data that's coming coming through that pipeline and how we separate signal from noise and send 
clean a signal back. Could you hit on some terms that everybody that's listening, obviously, is marketing, the concept of attribution? Well, attribution is our attempt to establish a cause-effective relationship between usually a click and a conversion. A conversion could be anything. Ideally, it's a revenue event, but there are a lot of situations when revenue happens way later. Like in your world, the revenue can take years to show up after this, you know, uh, some, some type of conversion event. So in, in the e-com world, usually someone shows, someone clicks on the ad and they may immediately buy something on the, they can buy something a couple of days later. In the world of IBM, like it can take years to develop a relationship and get that signature on the contract. So when you have this type of a lag, time lag for conversion, you move up your measurement up the funnel. So you start looking for correlates between some other actions, like someone fills out the form, they consume a video, they show up on a webinar, they listen to a podcast, like if you can measure this event, right? So these are, these are indicators of a quality of the lead and, and you use that, you measure that as a proxy for revenue, like in lieu of actual revenue numbers. I went a bit of a tangent, so back to, back to attribution. So attribution is our attempt to make sense of uh, things that happen on the way from an ad to from 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 the moment we spend money on, on on an ad to the moment we make money as a business like through a shopping cart or uh you know if someone sends us a payment so we want to know how the money that we spend on an ad affected the revenue that that's the connection we're trying to establish in this entire discipline and this there's a lot of science and a lot of math and a lot of tools that try to establish cause and effect relationships. If this click happened before the conversion, then this click is responsible for the conversion. I get the immediate cause and effect if you're just clicking and you buy something immediately on Amazon or something. How does AI properly take in something that has a sales cycle of six months? Uh, with great difficulty. Yeah, with great difficulty. Again, it's the same as it's the same as uh, dog training. If you give trade now it's is going to have an immediate effect if you withhold this treat for a couple of days the dog is not going to associate that treat with the action that you're trying to reward you have three ways to go there you you can have an operator input you know this is this is what they call um, a reinforcement learning through human mm -hmm. uh, feedback essentially if we're looking at the sales situation a lead comes in you have a human operator step in like before you fire a conversion event you have your sales team your sdr someone validate the lead. You can augment the data. You can kick off an API call to some database and get more data about this lead that's coming in. Basically add more columns to data set. You can be able to figure out that person's, um, you know, the homeowner or not, like how big of a mortgage they, they're carrying, if they're in specific, <clears throat> if they're shopping for a car right now. There's a bunch of different data sets available. Similarly for B2B situations, you can augment your data. You can figure out their job title, the experience, I don't know, figure out their salary range and a bunch of other things. So based on this data, you may be better equipped to make a decision whether or not this is a good lead. Obviously, you if you if you confirm that this is just spam, you, you want to throw those away. You don't want to fire conversion events for those at all. But if it's a good lead, then you may be able to establish that this lead is likely, going back to the $2,000 example, you may not be able to 
say with 100% certainty that this lead is worth $2,000, but probabilistically you may say, well, this looks like $700 in revenue potentially. That one may be 25 bucks and this one's $70. So use some type of a guesstimate and, and it could be based on human impact, it, it, human input. Um, and it can also be based on a set of heuristics. You can establish rules. So if this, this and that, then it's, then it's that. Um, which is just a more rigid way to do things. And finally, you can build an in-house machine learning model based on your historical CRM data. So you can take the data from your CRM, append it with more data that's available out there, throw it into the machine and, and build an in-house machine learning model that will then use its own rules to evaluate the, the leads. So what is ClickMaker's IO do differently? Well, first of all, we are prim primarily engineers. Pretty much everyone on the media buying team has an engineering degree of some sort. <clears throat> so very, we're very good with data. The first thing we always check when we get into a new account or do an audit of an account is that conversion tracking component to make sure that those feedback loops make sense, that, that the things that the should, should represent value to the business are fed back correctly to the network. That's the very first step. And, and probably nine out of 10 times that we look at someone's account, that mm -hmm. feedback loop is broken. So there's no secret to that. It's like literally there's no secret. Like that's the first thing we do. And then we do a lot of creative testing and we just generate a whole bunch of different creatives. And we have methodology for uh, testing these creatives faster to know, to sniff out the signal, like in the, in the sea of noise and figure out the which direction to Makes go. Sense. How do you determine whether a lead is a human or a bot? I know there's a lot of traffic spam and that can be overwhelming and it could skew some of your results. Is that an issue and how do you deal with it? There's, there's a number of products that allow you to validate those leads. Like in the B2C space, there's companies like Jornaya, and, uh, Active Prospect, Pipes.ai. It's a simple API call that you kick off to that solution and it gives you back a whole bunch of data that allows you to make that decision. Um, in, in the B2B space, there's several products as well. Clibit would be one example, Full Contact, and, and a bunch of other databases. Uh, your match rate is not going to be 100%. In the B2B world, it's probably going to be fairly low. Very often, like if the size of the transaction is very high, like it may be worthwhile, worth your time to actually have a human uh, operator. And, and very soon, I'm sure you will be able to replace or enhance a lot of these tasks with the eye. Just, you know, grab this email and just do a little bit of research on that person. You just pull in their social media profiles, go on their Facebook, go on their LinkedIn and see like what title do they have on LinkedIn? What, what, what's the experience? What kind of things have they worked with before? So tell me a little bit more about data. This is a data podcast, though we, we talk about everything, as I always say. Um, you've said that whoever has the most data wins. So how can data make or break your business? I should probably update the statement because I actually got into a bit of an <laughs> argument with uh, someone else. On the He's like, no, you don't need the most data. You just need the best data. Well, sure. Uh, we're not going to split hairs, but essentially it's all about signal versus noise. Like a lot of people are sitting on massive amounts of data that does not represent reality. So if you, if you're going back to these issue of conversion tracking, like if your conversion tracking has been wrong all along, if you have not, if you don't have the right taxonomies, if you don't, if you never used um, 
um, if, if you didn't use the right uh, UTMs on your ads, like we, if, we, if we, again, we, we talking specifically about advertising. UTMs, by the way, what is it's UTM? garbage in, garbage out. Well, UTMs are the way the industry has decided to track which campaign, which ad set, which ad is being spent money on and receiving impressions and clicks. So this is just a way for us to manage taxonomies uh, inside our media buying campaigns and then analyze the data in analytics. It goes back to Urchin Analytics. U stands for Urchin. I think it stands for, UTM mm-hmm. stands for Urchin Tracking Module. So Google acquired Analytics or Urchin, that, which became Universal Analytics eventually around 2005, I think. Um, so that's, that's how far back this mm-hmm. technology goes. <laughs> That's just the way we manage information or manage the buckets of information in media buying by using those. So back to, you know, what kind of data problems do you encounter? I mean, what what are the biggest hits and misses? We noticed that a lot of new campaign types, so products as Google calls them, benefit from the high velocity of data. So if you have more conversion events happening over a period of time, your campaign can catch... uh, the jet stream and just get carried, you know, all of a sudden the machine clues in, like it's, it's, it's almost like it wakes up and understands what you're trying to do. And all of a sudden it just takes off. Right. And, and, uh, it, it's a beautiful thing when it happens as a media buyer, when you experience that, 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 that becomes like, that's, that's how you get your high, like as a, as a media buyer, when, when you working and working and working on it and, trying to get the machine to see what's going on. And all of a sudden it just takes off. Um, so you need a certain amount of data or velocity of data, if you will, because basically you need enough conversions to happen in, in a certain period of time. I wish I could give you more specifics around it. Around it. I wish I understood the specifics around it. It is different account to account. Like it's, it's very hard to say exactly you know how many conversions you need like some accounts perform pretty okay like mm-hmm. with just a few conversions a month others require that we mm-hmm. have like 10 conversions a day at least but that's definitely a known phenomenon so you do need a certain amount of data uh whether or not you need a lot of data these days the machine is becoming smarter so a lot of these models have been trained on massive amounts of data already they've been pre-trained so when i say you know training the dog i'm using this metaphorically i'm not talking about training the machine learning model from the ground up like we get the model that's been pre-trained by meta or google or whomever what we do is then nudge the algorithm in the right direction by sending it the signal explaining to the machine what we value more what matters to us more um so um, so i call it strategic (laughs) nudging that's that's essentially what what we do these days. You know, we we have to be explicitly subtle with with the machine about this stuff. So I'm gonna start calling re- reinforcement learning strategic. Uh, so learning. so so the amount of data, <laughs> whoever has the most data wins. This statement is correct, but the amount of data, like what's the data? Like is it the rows of data or is it the columns of data? The more columns you have, the fewer rows you need to figure out what's going on, right? So if you just have email addresses, for you to understand 
you know, what, what these email addresses represent. Like there's no amount of data that will allow you to make better decisions. You need to add more columns to this data set, right? You need to understand, you know, are there, are there companies associated with these email addresses? Are there job titles associated with these email addresses? Are there budgets associated with it? Are there certain audience interests associated with those email addresses? Now, all of a sudden, like as you add more columns, you're able to pretty immediately make a lot of good decisions. And sometimes you just need one row of data to make a good decision. So you've got two companies. You've got uh, clickmakers.io and you've got measurebit.com. I presume that they, yeah, I'm gonna make a presumption and then you can correct my presumption, but I'm gonna presume they go hand in hand. Meaning you've got clickmakers.com that does performance marketing campaigns. And then you got the measurebit.com that does the conversion tracking attribution and, and the data workflows. What I want to explain about the relationship between the two companies, Clickmakers is largely how Measurebit was born out of a need to have a solution that I couldn't just find out there in the marketplace. I couldn't find a company that would be good enough with data. So I built it, took on a business partner, and we built a team that is good at the data stuff. And now Clickmakers is a client of Measurebit. So Measurebit works with advertisers that have in-house media buying teams and also works with agencies and Clickmakers being one of them. Uh, I see. So you always use uh, Measurebit then or no? Within like every campaign? Well, Measurebit is right. not software. It's a service. Like we, the, the, we may end up launching some products because we've written so much code in the last two years, like we have some pretty massive libraries that we may decide to package and sell as a standalone product. But right now it's just a service. And every time Clickmakers needs something sorted out when it, when it comes to data conversion tracking, it's Measurebit that's doing this work behind the scenes. Okay. But do you are they exclusive? Meaning, would you ever have one without the other? No. Do you ever have a customer that says, hey, no, I, I need the marketing campaign. I got my own tool. I, I don't need Measurebit. Do you take those on too, or you say no, no, no? Of course, of course. No, no. Each company has its own book of clients. Clickmakers has its own clients. Measurebit oh. has its own clients. Sometimes there's a bit of an overlap. Like there's some clients that use both services, but generally, like each company has its own book. But of I business. presume you're going to tell me Measurebit is better than the other tools that they can get. Uh, it is. It's the, it's it's the best comp It's the best deal out there. No, seriously, like the measurement team has been really amazing what they've been able to accomplish. Like we've sorted out some integration issues where we spoke with the software vendor, like with the technical people, and they told us flat out that whatever we were trying to do wasn't possible. And then we went back and figured out how to make it work. So, so talk more, say more about that, so, the differentiation um, in uh, measurebit.com that, that you would want customers to know. Yeah, where we shine is when a company has a Frankenstein monster of the website, which That's is like always the case, the case, isn't it? Not always, but very often the case. Let's say if, if it's just a major Shopify store, there are other companies that can be probably be almost as good or as good as us. But when you have maybe two different cards, just to give you a, a very specific example, we have a client that has Shopify for e-com, SEM card for subscriptions, uh, they have four different page builders, HubSpot, uh, Squarespace, Webflow, and something else. Uh, I can't remember which right now. But they have four different page builders, two different CRMs. Um, that's that's a perfect client for us. That I, I just 
I can't think of anyone else out there who was able to stitch this something like this together. Um, companies with multiple WordPress sites and you know some other cards and in the picture and affiliate tracking and all all, all kinds of other things. Look, is there anything that uh, I've not dived into yet, Alex, that you really want to make sure is clear about your companies? And- I think we covered a lot of ground today. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty sure our industry is uh, going to go through a major transformation in the next little while. It's going through that already. And there's so many factors to it. Um, so I stand by my statement. The data is very important. Whoever has more of it is going to win. But more importantly, whoever has cleaner signal, more signal, less noise is going to win. And that's where, that's speaking we, of where do you think that's what we do at if I talk to you in three years from now, what do you think is going to be the big profound changes from today? Anyone who's trying to predict what's going to happen is, is going to be way off because we're terrible at predicting uh, what is called emergent properties of, of certain trends. Like I wouldn't be surprised if the advent of AI that we are living through right now would not result in some type of epigenetic changes uh, in our species. You know, like I'm, for example, I'm studying Spanish right now and every day I'm like, do I even need to be doing this? Or is there going to be a chip that they're just going to drop into my ear? And, you know, <laughs> like like the way they do it in the Matrix movie, you download it and all of a sudden, you know, like why do we even need to do this? So if you remove the need for people to want a bunch of this thing, like coding, you know, coding jobs are going away now. You know, if people stop thinking as coders anymore, you know, what what does that mean? Like, are we, Isn't that are a... We Better at building software. Isn't that a or... dangerous way to think, though? I got what you're saying. I mean, there could be people out there. You know, I do a lot of AI pitches, and we're talking uh, generative AI, as you mentioned to begin the podcast. They they they're probably thinking, if I'd have started ten years ago, I'd have worked my butt off to be able to achieve some of the results. I may be ahead of the competition, but if I just wait another five years, pretty soon it'll do everything for me. But you've missed ten years of good time where you have AI first. And those trials and tribulations also lead to innovation. So you know how to best use artificial intelligence. Don't you think there's a huge miss? Absolutely. Oh, I, I'm not suggesting that we just need to sit and wait. I'm just thinking like in general, as a humanity, you know, all of the humanity is going to become empowered by all these things. And what it's going to create for us is very hard to predict. But um, the world is going to become even more flat than it is today. Uh, for example... Someone in, I don't know, let's say Bangladesh, they won't need to speak perfect American accent anymore. They can have the AI do that for them. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a video floating around of uh, um, Lex Freeman uh, t- t- talking about talking in, pu- in, in fluent uh, Hindu. I, I don't know if it sounds like perfect Hindu to someone who understands Hindu because I don't speak the language. But it's very impressive. And we're just in early innings of this game, right? So the world, some, the marketplace will open up to so many more creators from many more economies that are some, there's, the barrier of entry for them is going to become way lower. Uh, and we'll get to step by game, step up by game in so many areas that, uh, you know, we, there was a bit of a barrier for someone else that, uh, you know, our market, our expertise was somewhat protected, but now this stuff is going to open up. First of all, it's going to just 
the level of innovation, the, the speed of innovation is going to accelerate so much more. And there's going to be so, so many more products available to us. So, so, so much. I faster, agree with I you think. on that. But going back to your generative AI comment, where will generative AI change marketing? Well, we'll have some type of an impediment in the specific market. Like maybe you don't speak the language. Maybe, maybe you have a face made for okay. radio. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe your avatar does not represent your, maybe you does not, do not represent the avatar uh, that, that you're marketing to. All of a sudden, all those things become non-obstacles anymore because you can have an AI model that speaks the language perfectly, the target language perfectly, speaks the language of the, your custom avatar perfectly, represent that avatar. Um, and, uh, and you didn't have to learn the language. You didn't have to become that person. All those things become, it's, it's a leveling the playing field for everyone. Uh, it's just... Uh, where is going to lead us? I have no idea, but I, I think the speed of innovation. Is going I to equate the speed so of innovation. More. I used to equate it to like dog years. Now it's like mouse years, one in 30 versus one in seven. But let me ask. But also so many more markets are going to open up. Like we, we had a client where we ran campaigns in eight languages. They, they went through a troublesome, expensive, difficult process of taking the product, info product in one language translating into like eight different languages. So we ran it and so it was in English, then we ran it in Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, German, Turkish, I can't remember all the languages, eight different languages. Now imagine with a push of a button, you launch a product in English, now you can launch it in, I don't know, 200 different languages tomorrow, easily. So let me ask you one last question on that though. And one reason I asked about what do you think of the future? You know, there is one thing that, I mean, if, I'm not fearful of anything, but if there's something that does concern me is is just the amount of fake news with generative AI because we've got a lot of misinformation out there, et cetera. Yeah. I gotta believe, you know, when you're talking marketing, that's a real risk in the marketing side. You don't know what to believe, what not to believe. Does that concern you in the marketing space? And how do you plan to deal with it? It's no different than the problems we had before. It just takes these problems to a whole new level. Um, but the uh, again, this is uh side effect of increased productivity across the entire domain of not just marketing, but product creation and everything. We, as a, as a civilization, we, we've been a little too spent thrift uh, with our, um, you know, with all the money printing, all the financial stuff. The, the only chance for us to avoid a financial disaster of a global proportions is to jump up our productivity, you know, by a factor of 100 in the next couple of years. And it's very interesting that this generative AI shows up just when we need it the most. Yes, there's a great danger in it. I agree with you. Like, I think the next year's election is going to be very interesting. <laughs> the, we already experienced some of it in the previous election cycles, but like, I can only imagine where generative AI is going to be in a year from now. It's it's very impressive the stuff that people already do in this and and it's advancing so much so much in such a short time it's just i can't even imagine what's going to be like next year but it's going to be interesting for sure and we'll learn a lot from it as a civilization we'll learn how to work with it and how to manage it and how to live with those hopefully it's going to make us better sure. brave new world hey what do you do for fun my friend when you're not doing marketing <laughs> when i'm do not doing marketing i like to travel i like to hike I like to play some music instruments, piano, guitar. I've been putting a lot of time into Spanish. I'll probably be splitting more time between Canada and Mexico. 
Just because that's where you like to travel or, or to Mexico? Or? Yeah. Where do you go? We spent uh, our last winter there. Uh, we went to, well, we drove down there. So we spent some time in a bunch of different places. Um, the place we like the most right now is uh, Puerto Escondido. In Oaxaca, so is this like Oaxaca a coast. snowbird type of thing? No, no, it's uh, it's a surfing. Oh, so you're a surfer, Mexico? Like it's uh, there's some big waves there. Uh, just, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> An aspiring one, maybe. No, maybe one day I will be one. Where are you located normally? Right now I'm a little bit north of Toronto, yeah. like in the in the, in the, in the stick. Thank you for being here, Alex. It's a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it, and uh, I wish you all the best in your business endeavors. Thank you. Podcast listeners, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. As always, we'll listen. We'll get you on the podcast. Thank you. And until next time, see you.